0: Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. If anything other than that had been said to me in that instant, I am confident I wouldn't be standing here in front of all of you today with the stories that I have of a 21 plus years of career as a fighter pilot, okay? So the power of your words to make or break somebody else's dreams are like, I mean, infinitely powerful, Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed, fix the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali.
1: Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 85. This episode is sponsored by the Impactful Business Leadership Mastermind. The Mastermind brings together hungry entrepreneurs and business owners who want to scale their business, get their toughest problems solved, learn best practices, and build their networks. Learn more at impactfulcoaching.com forward slash BLM. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Colonel Nicole Malakowski. Colonel Nicole Malakowski has over 21 years of experience as an officer, leader, and fighter pilot in the United States Air Force. Upon her commission into the military, she was selected to fly combat aircraft and embarked on an adventure among the first group of women to fly modern fighter aircraft. Nicole served as a mission-ready fighter pilot in three operational F-15E squadrons, and accumulated over 2,300 flight hours, including 188 hours in combat. Following her medical retirement from the Air Force due to severe impacts of late-stage tick-borne illness, Nicole reinvented herself as a highly successful entrepreneur, professional speaker, and leadership consultant. Nicole, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. And that was quite a mouthful. And I certainly (laughs) want to unpack that because I don't get to speak to people from the Air Force all that often. Certainly not individuals like yourself, trailblazers, um, really helping, I guess, create opportunities for women to fly uh, aircraft and whatnot. So I, I want to understand your journey better. Tell me, tell us, how you got into this, how you got started in the Air Force. And I'd like to also unpack, because I think we have to be honest, there are times where women face unique challenges in getting into what has historically been male-dominated spaces. And I can't think of any place that fits that description better um, than the the armed services and the Air Force in particular. So I'd, I'd love to just shut my mouth and listen, hear your story, and tell us about Everything, the good, the bad, you don't have to get into too much into the ugly, but whatever you feel comfortable sharing yeah. to give us that, that perspective.
0: Sure. You know, I can uh, distinctly remember the moment I decided I was going to join the Air Force and be a fighter pilot. So the context is I I came from a family where both of my grandfathers had served um, in the military. My father had been drafted into the army during Vietnam, and I was raised in a family that showed deep respect for the military, right? I knew that joining the military, wearing your nation's uniform, serving your country was something that was noble and it was honorable and it was good. And it
1: still is. I want to remind everybody it still is.
0: Indeed, bravo to that. Um, you know, and so I grew up being part of that family that would go to the Veterans Day parades, right? That would, you know, proudly stand and salute the fat the flag. And I remember, you know, being at those parades and watching the military folks march together in uniform. And I just thought there was something really kind of cool and inspiring about that. And about that same time, I was about five years old. Give me 1979, give or take. Um, we went to the local air show and I saw an aircraft flying that just opened up my dreams, right? Mm. It was the F-4 Phantom. Uh, it was the workhorse of the Vietnam war. And I remember when it came by the runway, like really low. I mean, it was so loud. I had to cover my ears. I remember the the rumble like vibrated inside of my like whole chest here. I remember smelling wow. the jet fuel and thinking like, that's what I want to do someday. So I think when you put together just being raised in a family that respected military service with like just this fascination, a child, like definitely fascination with that aircraft, that was the day I said, I'm going to become a fighter pilot someday.
1: But somebody must've told you, Nicole, that you can't do that. Right. You're a girl. You can't do that.
0: Well, actually, there's twofold. You know, one, it was actually against the law in 1979 oh, really? for women to serve as fighter pilots. And that law would not change until I went to college at the Air Force Academy. And so there was a very real barrier
1: in there. And you um, did this knowing that that barrier existed.
0: Well, yes. Remember, when you're a kid, this idea that Congress has a law that prevents your dream, it doesn't really kind of register. Um, When I first realized the impact, I was probably about 12 years old. Um, I was in sixth grade. And our teacher, um, he would have one student stand up every Friday and say what you wanted to be when you were going to grow up and how you were going to get there. And so it came to be my turn on a Friday. And I stood up thinking nothing of it, You know, I'd wanted to be a fighter pilot since I was five. So here I am seven years later at the ripe old age of 12. And I said, I want to be a fighter pilot. And I remember the class laughing. And I do remember the teacher saying, Nicole, you should probably sit down and come back next week when you have something that's more realistic. Mm. Now I look back and I go, was he trying to be mean? No, I think it was a reflection of one, the law. I mean, Actually, I couldn't become a fighter pilot. So there's that. But also just a reflection of, you know, the cultural paradigms at that time. I don't think it was intentional. Did it hurt? You bet. Did I go home and put my face in the pillow and cry? You bet. And then divine intervention, I think, in the universe came in. And I recognized at that age the story of the WASP, the Women Air Force Service Pilots of World War II. And I discovered that we had had women military aviators, you know, back in the 1940s. And that was just enough of a catalyst, right, to keep that flame of that dream alive. And I moved forward. And so throughout junior high and high school, I stayed really focused on my goal. I like to tell people I was maniacally focused. Um, I'm glad my dream worked out because I really didn't have a backup plan. Um, I stayed uh, in organizations like the Civil Air Patrol in Air Force Junior ROTC. So I surrounded myself, you know, with people who believed in my dream as much as I did uh, and then found my way to the Air Force Academy. Um, You know, you talk about being in a male-dominated career field. Um, I will absolutely say that there were difficult times, especially when I joined my very first fighter squadron back in 1999. There was, you know, uh, definite groups of people, right? There was folks who were totally on board with it, had no issues with women joining fighter squadrons. There were ones that were unsure, but they weren't going to get in your way. They were kind of a wait and see. Can women... Meet the standards. Uh, of course, we can. Uh, can women exceed the standards? Of course, we can. I think it was more: is having women in a fighter squadron going to somehow change the camaraderie, right? The brotherhood that is the fighter squadron. That that was that center group. Yeah. And then, of course, you had uh, the group who was completely anti-women in a fighter squadron, and it didn't matter what you were going to do or how well you performed; you were never right going to convince them. And I would say that, generally speaking, um, there was a generational thing going on there. So the folks who were older than me, you know, I was a lieutenant. Let's talk about the lieutenant colonels, the colonels. They were the most apprehensive because this was a massive culture shift um, for them. Whereas folks who were my age, who'd gone through training with me or been at the Air Force Academy with me, uh, they'd never known an Air Force without women fighter pilots in it. So it was a very different mindset. Sure. Um, There were ones that gave me the silent treatment. And if you're 22, 23 years old, young lady deployed overseas, Trying to fly fighters. I mean, that can absolutely be hurtful. And I won't pretend to say that it didn't. Um, but hurtful,
1: I mean, isolating. Yeah. I yeah.
0: But I made a conscious choice to be with the people and listen to the people who were in those other categories, right? Because there were plenty of them. I can sit here and concentrate on the minority of the naysayers, or I can surround myself with the people who are supportive and trying to make me a good and better fighter pilot. And, right. you know, that's what I did.
1: And I would say, though, I mean, there's so much to unpack and we're going to. Um, That's the good part about writing um, a script of questions and then not adhering to any of them because there's too much goodness in in what you've already said. Um, But on that point of the naysayers for just a second, I think I know for me personally, for some of my clients and certainly for people at large, it's the naysayers that are our biggest motivator. So we don't want them right when we're dealing with the issue, because who wants to be told that we can't and who wants to be told that what we're trying to do is wrong? But they they do provide, pardon the pun, they do provide fuel, right, for our for our efforts, for all, what it is that we're trying to accomplish. At the same time, you made a choice, or You made a choice to focus the, on the people who were supportive. And um, and, and I applaud you for that because not all of us, not all of us necessarily feel, I guess you would say emotionally, um grounded enough and, and secure enough in, in who we are uh, mm-hmm. to be able to say, I'm going to focus on this group because that's where I'm sourcing my energy. That's where the positivity is. That's where you know, I'm going to be able to extract what I need to do my very best. And I'm just going to pretend these guys over here either don't exist right. or I'm going to give them as little attention as possible so that I could do my very best work
0: hundred percent. I think it was around that timeframe that I started kind of using this mantra, which is believe those who believe in you, Mm. believe those who believe in you Um, helped me focus on the right group of people. The beauty of being a fighter pilot is that what we do is very objective. There are set standards. Everything we do is videotaped. And in debrief, we go frame by frame in that videotape. And so the proof is there, you know, some women working male dominated career fields where it's maybe a little bit more subjective, right? Did that lawyer do a good job, you know, when she was presenting to the jury? Um, Did that, you know, actress uh, perform correctly? You know, people can be a lot more subjective as a fighter pilot. It's not. So over time, when you consistently perform to the standard and you can see that objectively in the debrief, a lot of the middle ground people finally shifted and said oh wow women really can do this I've seen it you know firsthand and I need to change the way I think for the naysayers I don't think I changed their opinion but it did cause them to not actively right try to obstruct my progress um, did they go underground some of them yes but at least they weren't actively you know rooting for me to fail anymore at least
1: publicly yeah that- i like that it does yeah. it does and having that objective data is helpful as well because it does shift like you said and i want to get into this also there's so much you said earlier that I'm, i i made notes to come back to but i do want to talk about a culture shift because you talked about how when you first got started you had the three camps the supportive kind of like that neutral group that were wait and see and then you had that other group that were definitely not in your camp but over mm-hmm. time as you matured in the you know the air force and and others came in after you and all of that the mindset shifted and people who maybe were were your peers coming in never saw as you indicated an air force that didn't have women in it so so how do you advise people when they come to you you know our culture is really not what it needs to be um we need to change the way people are thinking we need to be whether it's more progressive, more inclusive, more whatever. Uh, that cultural shift is that people want to to implement, but they're struggling, right? So, so what would be your advice to help people to see things differently and then to make sure that that new paradigm sticks? Yeah, and it doesn't become just a flash in the pan.
0: Indeed, and you just hit on an important point, which is, you know, organizational cultural change takes time. I think there's this kind of belief that, well, we've recognized that there's a problem or we need a shift in the culture. So we're just going to go flick the switch. And overnight, we're going to say it needs to change. This is the way we need to be. And it just needs to be happen in an instant. And what people need to realize, if you are truly dedicated to changing organizational culture, then you need to be in it for the long haul. And you need to be committed fairly and consistently right across time. And when we're building organizational cultures, I think, first of all, everybody needs to have buy-in as to what that culture is. So I don't care if it's your youngest wingman or newest intern all the way up, you know, to the CEO or the general officer, everyone needs to come together in a place where they can openly and freely speak about what that culture needs to be. In many cases, right, for teams and stuff, it's written in a mission statement or it's written in a list of of, uh, corporate values and, and et cetera. And to your point, we need to make sure it's not just something that's a on an HR inboarding handbook or on the poster, right, by the water fountain that says, this is who we are. It's that something that has been inculcated and is lived to the point where when people act, they're thinking is what I'm about to say or do gonna be in alignment with this organizational culture. In the Air Force, as fighter pilots, we had something called the wingman contract. It's a phrase, two words, wingman contract. And it means everything. It is an unspoken bond that says this is our culture. It's kind of like that gentleman's handshake or a gentlewoman's agreement that says this is who we are. These are our standards. And out of caring and compassion for each other and a shared commitment to what we're doing here, our values that we've agreed on, I will hold myself accountable to that standard and never from a place of judgment or shame, but always from caring and compassion, I will hold you accountable to that standard. And I think having a wingman contract and having buy-in to those values and making sure everyone has a role and a say is extremely important. Um, And again, commitment over time. That's where it gets hard. People need to realize they got to be in it for the long haul.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really, it really is true. And there's a lot there to unpack. Um, But I'm going to shift, if I may, to something you said earlier, because you brought me to a place where I probably was. I don't know that I was ever guilty of what I'm going to call it a crime, although I don't think it really was. I'm just using it for the purpose of illustration. When your teacher made that sort of reorientation comment asking you to, to rethink your future it's not that the teacher did anything intrinsically wrong. Like you said, he probably, he may have known the the law. And even if he didn't in his mind, what you were, what you were looking to do was so far out of the realm of reality that, you know, he just wanted you to, kind of like think about something relevant so that you could pursue the necessary, I guess, coursework to eventually get there. And I get it, you know, as as a former educator myself, former school leader, um, teachers, and I I hear this all the time, that education is really suited for a certain, let's call it element of our population was very useful in the industrial age, where people really needed to have foundational skills to do jobs. But in this 21st century century entrepreneurial environment where more and more people are ditching the nine to five, they're looking for something a little bit different. So I, I think that we as educators and people in general need to be very careful as parents for children, for example, or as mentors for kids, to mm-hmm. not to, to sort of find the right balance between what's what's reasonable to pursue, but not to throw cold water, certainly not too early. Because what's what's possible keeps changing, right? What was possible for me when I was growing up is, um, I mean, you know, was more limited than what my kids have access to, and their kids are going to have access to that much more. So I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. What's the right balance when we're messaging here um, to to help young people in particular pursue their dreams without necessarily getting off the rails, but not. To limit themselves.
0: Oh, this is such a great point. Let's go back to that air show in 1979, where I'm literally standing with family and friends, shaking with excitement, knowing that this is my destiny, right? And I'm going to make this happen. And I look up and I say, I'm going to be a fighter pilot someday. And the exact words were, you're going to be a great fighter pilot someday. It wasn't, you can't, it wasn't, it's hard. Do you realize how difficult that is? Do you realize you probably won't get picked? Do you realize there's a law in your way? It was simply, we believe right? That this is something that can happen in the follow-on. So my point is, if anything other than that had been said to me in that instant, I am confident I wouldn't be standing here in front of all of you today with the stories that I have of a 21 plus years of career as a fighter pilot. Okay. So the power of your words to make or break somebody else's dreams are like, I mean, infinitely powerful, right? Yeah. So- Beyond the side of being helpful and kind. The follow-up questions I got as I went through elementary school and junior high and high school, and this is where it becomes important is, that's great, you wanna be a fighter pilot. What does it take to become one? So you have a target. How do you work from the target backward to pick those interim steps that you need to fulfill in order to get there? And that's where we as mentors or teammates and leaders can come in and go, what do you need resource-wise in order to make this happen? how can I help you be successful? Let's identify gaps that we may be able to fill with maybe extra education or extra training or extra equipment, whatever that might be. So I think the first thing is if someone else believes it's possible, let them believe it's possible. And then ask that pragmatic question. Okay. It's a big, gnarly, complex goal and dream. You just stated, yeah. let's break it down into uh, you know digestible steps.
1: Love it. So the dream to that realistic and, you know, practical, pragmatic break, you know, sort of decompression, if you will, of, of the goals to to make sure that everything is accounted for. And is it in fact something you really want to pursue? And, And that also ties into something else you mentioned before, Nicole, which you may have done it out of, I guess you would say youthful ignorance or just this general optimism, but you talk about having no plan B. And you know, I, I know that from a conservative standpoint. I'm not talking politically now. Conservative standpoint, people say have a plan B, right? Have something in your backup. In your, you know, even even you know, I have I have a son, for example, who's in who's in sales, and for the moment, you know doesn't necessarily need a degree in order to achieve his aspirations. Yet at the same time, my wife and I are like, okay, well, just finish it up. You know, a few courses left, that kind of thing, because you always want to have that in your back pocket. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I hear people say there is no plan B. If you have a plan B, you're never going to pursue your plan A. So how do you advise people who on the one hand want to be responsible, you know, want to have something that they could fall back on. On the other hand, not to use that as a deterrent, not to use that as a crutch, that would, that would get them offline as far as pursuing their plan a with, you know, full throttle.
0: Yeah. So I, I definitely was maniacally focused, um, on this goal. And I also realized that not everybody is that way. Not everybody should be that way. People's dreams and goals can change and they should change if that's what's going on in your life. So I don't want people to think that my way, right, is the only way to get to success. Plenty of people find success at different stages in their life with multiple goals and and multiple dreams. And that is perfectly cool. Um, I did not, in fact, have a plan B, but I don't think of it in terms of plan A and plan B. I think of it in terms of contingency planning. So while i'm on this path towards this target if something doesn't go the way i had planned it or the way i needed it to go right have i thought through that contingency before i got there right we need to think like almost like a combat mission that's how i've always kind of approached uh, going after different goals is what is the contingency um, to either get around that issue over it or through it or to again shift my focus to maybe a new a new target, right? Which I guess other people might call a plan B, but I think of it in terms, I guess, of contingency planning, um, being prepared for those things when they don't go wrong, because the path to success is always non-linear. Yes. Always. If for any person, for any one team, I mean, it's going to be riddled with twists and turns, bumps, bruises, mistakes, failures all along the way. Without and that was true in my life, for sure.
1: So let's talk about another area, which must have been very present in your entire journey, but certainly when you were up in the air and definitely when you were in combat. And that's the issue of managing fear. Mm -hmm. Fear is very much part of our lives. I think some of us do a a better job than others in managing it, but but everybody deals with it. Everybody struggles with it. And I'm not asking for a way by which to remove fear because that's not possible. But I'm curious to know what were your approaches when you were most fearful, right? Situations Mm -hmm. that really um, struck at the heart of, of, of you and your, your, your future, maybe even your existence? And, and what are some of your tips to help people who are feeling afraid, maybe for their career, their family, their health, something to get through that with optimism and get through that with, you know, with their very, putting their very best foot forward.
0: Sure. I mean, fear is part of the human condition. Anybody that tells you that they haven't felt fear or don't feel fear for certain things is probably not (laughs) in touch with themselves. Um, So certainly there's been moments of fear in my life. And I know, you know, usually it's fear of the unknown, uh, fear of failure and probably fear of people not liking me. Right. Those are probably like, if I could, you know, break it down. Yeah. Those are the big three, at least for me. And what I found when going into combat, let's say, I don't know that I would use the term fear, but maybe that's my ego talking right now, but certainly knowing that there's a level of risk, especially, you know, your first combat mission, how do you get past that? How do you get into the jet, you know, and take off and go into the unknown? Because I've never flown a sortie that ever went the way that I planned it. And in combat, the enemy always had a vote. Right. So that's fear of the unknown, fear of the unexpected and certainly the unwelcome at times. For me, it was really just knowing that I had done everything in my power to prepare so we can spend entire careers, right, training to the highest levels. I never flew a combat mission that was ever harder than my training missions. And that's the way it should be. What are you doing to prepare yourself mentally, physically, skill wise So that when it comes time to execute, you know, you're ready with muscle memory to respond when those contingencies happen. I tell people the taxpayers of America didn't pay me to fly that aircraft or to literally um, do what I did in combat. I honestly believe I was trained and you, the taxpayers of America, paid me for my judgment when things didn't go right. That's what you have to be ready for is constantly planning to change right? Constantly planning to have to pivot and be agile. And I hate to use those buzzwords, but it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that idea of preparation, I also want to say that launching into combat becomes much easier when I've come from a team where we have that wingman contract we talked about before. I knew the standards That I would live up to on that sortie and I knew the standards that my teammates and wingmen were going to live up to right that gives you a certain level of comfort because you know that the actions and decisions and behaviors on that sortie are going to be a set way so that's kind of, you know, a way to kind of take away some of the fog and friction of war which exists. By knowing you can fall back on your team, you can fall back on that wingman contract and the standards, and you can fall back on your training. Um, And then as you step into that jet to fly a combat mission, to me, it's a lot like a, you know, a boxer going into the ring. Like you definitely mentally and emotionally get in the zone. And one of the things that we would do prior to flying is we would do something called chair flying. Literally, I would sit in a chair, close my eyes and just visualize the entire mission, when we would, you know, turn to a different heading, the place that we would be dropping ordinance, the radio calls that I would have to make. I would also think through the contingencies at each point where they could happen and what we would do. And so this visualization helped create that muscle memory and comfort, but it also helped um, me see mission success. Mm -hmm. I hope that makes sense.
1: (laughs) It sure does. So I have a couple more questions I'd like to ask you. Uh, You talked about changing and pivoting and all of that. You, you've done the same thing, leaving the the armed forces and moving into entrepreneurship and speaking and other things that you do, consulting. You know, and again, as a former educator, you know, uh, my mindset always was, here's my job, right? Here's my paycheck. I'm going to do my job. I never really thought in an entrepreneurial fashion outside of, let's say, some presentations and things like that, maybe developing some curriculum. And I would imagine in the Army or in the Air Force or any 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 structured, Military environment. Again, you're focused on doing your job, receiving your orders, and you're not necessarily thinking from an entre- entrepreneurial standpoint. So, my question, Nicole, is how did you shift your mindset, and and what do you, what do, what most lights you up about this part of your career?
0: Sure. You know, I have to say. Um, I had to shift my mindset because honestly, I was forced to. Now, let's be honest. It's easy to kind of follow, you know, a set operations tempo or process or culture, like you said, in the military. It's only when chaos and crisis and the unexpected come along, right, that a lot of times we move with that. That's when we create and we innovate and we're willing to try something new. So I would argue with people and with teams and organizations, why wait for chaos and crisis to come along? Right. To harness those behaviors. But back back to your question, you know, three and a half years ago, I was medically retired from the military, completely unwelcome, completely unexpected, completely out of nowhere. And I'll be honest, I had a very human pity party. Who am I if I'm not wearing my nation's uniform? Who am I if I'm not you know, serving my country by being a fighter pilot? You know, How am I going to provide for my family? I can't walk, talk, read, or write. Who's going to hire me? All of these things. And I think it's very human. Um, and then one day as I was laying there, bedridden on the couch, my career was coming to an end. These words came to my head. Clear as day. Yield to overcome. Yield to overcome in that moment to me didn't mean quitting or surrendering or giving up. What it meant was... Asking yourself the right questions. I've been sitting there asking all of the negative, wrong things. The real question is, what can you do right now with what you have? What is it that you're actually going to miss? And how can you fill that hole moving forward? And so I found myself thinking deeply kind of on this yield to overcome. I didn't ask to get sick. I didn't ask to be medically retired. But here I am. All right. So how do I you know, look forward? I, I use an aviation metaphor here. The runway behind you is always unusable. All you ever have is the runway that's in front of you. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, people kept saying, Nicole, I'm so sorry you can't fly anymore. I'm so sorry you can't fly that jet. And it hit me. It's not the jet that I miss. It's not flying that I miss, even to this day. What I missed, the hole in my heart was actually being on a team and leading people. And so by taking my leadership lessons learned and and things I've learned both personally and through my uh, professional hardships and teaching them to people now as a consultant, as a professional speaker, very selfishly fills that hole in my heart. And so people go, why did you pick professional speaking and consulting? There's lots of things you could have gone and done. I followed the Japanese philosophy of Ikagai, uh, I-K-A-G-A-I. I recommend folks look it up if you're looking for your purpose. It's a combination of um, what you love, what the world needs, what you're good at, and what you can get paid for. And the more I filled out those circles on that Venn diagram, the more it came to professional speaking and consulting. So that's how I found myself here with all of you today.
1: Awesome. So my last question for this segment, it's a question I ask all of my guests, Um, you know, because I bring really successful, talented people on the show and everyone who's listening, you know, we've got to all ask that question the same way that when I pop up Instagram or, or some of my social feeds and I see all these people who just look wonderful and sound wonderful and seem to be killing it and whatever they're doing, you know, we have to be able to poke holes also and say, you know, like you said before, Nicole, it's not a linear uh, progression. You know, we have ups and downs, all of us do. And if everybody thinks that the great people that that are in front of them never had any challenges, then there's no lesson to be learned. But if we do have challenges, we do have setbacks, and we overcame them, that's where the real gold is for most folks. Talk us through a particular challenge that you experienced. I know you've you've hit on a bunch, so feel free to reinforce what you said before, perhaps something new, and how you overcame it to become who you've become.
0: Yeah, you bet. You know, we just talked a little bit about that personal challenge with the medical issue and I'm trying to think of a good professional story. Let's go back to one of my fears, fear of failure right? So fear of failure is something that I think connects uh, most human beings. So, you know, I'd wanted to be a fighter pilot since I was five. I worked my, my little heart out to find myself at pilot training. And so this was 1990 end of 96, 1997. So I'm 21 years old. This is the culmination of my life's efforts, right? I'm in this 12 month long intense training program. And about two months into this 12 month long training program, I fail a check ride. Now, let me put that into context. There's really very few check rides, maybe once a month, you know, as you go across this, and they count for points in your class standing. Statistically speaking, at that time, if you failed one check ride, you pretty much had taken yourself out of the running to be a fighter pilot. Okay. You had to graduate at the top of your class select to select fighters. And I remember that if you failed two check rides, you're pretty much going to if you will wash out of pilot training and not graduate at all those were kind of the statistics give or take at that time so two months into this 12 month long program my lifetime dream I fail a check mm-hmm. right and I remember going back to my room crying thinking it's over if I can't be a fighter pilot I'm gonna quit now looking back that's a very childish type reaction but I was a kid at that time and it was a dramatic emotional event I said I'm I'm just going to quit pilot training because if I fail again, I have to be perfect over the next 10 months. You know, I was just overwhelmed with emotion. And I remember finally calling a mentor of mine, Sue Ross, who had been my English teacher when I was a cadet at the Air Force Academy. But more importantly, she was the first woman Air Force pilot I ever met. She flew KC-135s and she had these beautiful pilot's wings and I thought she could hung the moon. So I called Sue. I said, Sue, I'm going to quit, right? I can't take it. I took myself out of the running to be a fighter pilot. I'm one step closer. I've used my mulligan. I'm probably not going to graduate anyways. It's over. And I remember this long conversation with her, right, where she talked me off the ledge. Um, and she said to me, well, what mistake did you make? And I started coming up with all these excuses. And she kept hitting it. What was the mistake that you made? And I finally told her the mistake I had made. I had put my flaps in the wrong position for takeoff, which is unsafe and against the, against the procedure. So they had to fail me. She said, are you going to do that again tomorrow? And I remember there just being silence on the phone. I'm thinking, Sue, I can't get back in the jet tomorrow, right? But that she was making a point. So talking to her for another hour through tears, I got back into that cockpit the next day, you know, and the rest of course is history. Yes. I had used my mulligan. Yes. I had fallen flat on my face right across the starting line. And at the end of the day, this failure taught me, right. That you can come out of failure a lot more committed to your goal, a lot more dedicated, right, to putting in the effort to getting it right, and a lot more humble. And I think those three things are all pretty amazing good qualities. And the lesson that I learned from that failure was that indeed, I think failure is the price of entry for achieving something great. It and sure if you can is. realize that going into big, hard, gnarly goals and dreams, then it makes it a lot easier to handle those failures and bumps when they happen because they will.
1: Wow. Okay. So I'm going to let that settle for a moment, but we're also going to transition. Thank you, Nicole, for an awesome segment. Let's talk a little bit in the rapid fire. So our answers are short and sweet. And I'd love to hear from you if you could plaster a message on a massive billboard, maybe even up in the sky. Who knows? What would it say?
0: It would say nobody wants to lead a scripted life.
1: Great. Awesome. Nobody wants to lead a scripted podcast. So this has been awesome. (laughs) Something cool about the Air Force that few people know.
0: That the vast majority of people in the Air Force have nothing to do career field-wise with actually touching aircraft. Less than 8% of the Air Force touches or flies on aircraft. There's over 150, I think, give or take, different amazing career fields
1: and ways to contribute. Oh, awesome. I didn't realize Okay, and the last one, which again, I ask everybody for a productivity tip that helps you to get more done.
0: I actually make sure that I set boundaries. All right, so the way I schedule my day, I block things for very specific things. And when outside influences try to infringe on that, I say no. I learned to say no and set boundaries after I fell severely ill. So I've only been good at it for about three years. It's a gift I wish I had given myself sooner. Set boundaries, adhere to them, and be okay saying no.
1: There you go. Okay, so I'm going to say yes to asking you now to share how Lead to Succeed Nation can connect with you, learn more about you, tap into your experience, your wisdom, all that good stuff that you've been sharing, and uh, where they can find you.
0: Well, absolutely. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. I do have a website. It's a surprise, surprise. It's Nicole com. So www.nicolemalakowski.com.
1: It'll On be in the show notes for anyone who's not sure yes. how to spell that.
0: Yeah, it's got, you know, just kind of my life story, some speaking reels in there. I've also got a blog. Uh, I try to do very, uh, as much as I can, posting content to my social media. So you can find me on LinkedIn, just my name, Nicole Malakowski. Then I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. My handle is at Real Malakowski. That's at Real Malakowski. And I'd love nothing more than to continue the conversation with all of you. So feel free to drop me a note anytime.
1: Awesome. Okay. So finally, Nicole, I feel a little bit to use the Yiddish. I feel schnurish, which means I'm like grabbing a little more than I should. Uh, but I will ask you for one final life lesson to help us really wrap up such a beautiful conversation.
0: The one thing I wish I had known when I was younger, the one thought, right. That I wish I had followed is this only you can define success for yourself. Don't ever let any other person, organization, corporation, team, whatever it is, define success for you. Only you can
1: define success for yourself. Love it. Okay, Nicole, it's really been a pleasure. It's been worth, I don't know if everybody, if I shared this before, but um, one of my earlier podcast guest. Mike Abershoff was the one who originally suggested that I have you on the show. It's taken some time to get here, but I'm delighted that we finally did it. It's been a fantastic conversation. I've learned a ton. I want to thank you again for being here. And um, I really do hope that uh, everyone who's been listening does connect with you because you have so much to offer.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a joy to join all of you and I wish everyone a very happy new year.
1: you as well. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening
0: to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen.